0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For 16 years, the Darfur region in Western Sudan has been the site of horrific crimes against humanity. Our correspondent went to see the transition of power now underway as the country is offered a chance for peace. And we take a look at efforts to help immigrants into the labor market. Many want to rebuild their lives by starting businesses, and they find niches that natives overlook. But to be able to do that, authorities have to let them work. First up, though... Throughout the autumn, people in France have expressed concern about proposed sweeping changes to the pension system. Today, they're taking to the streets in a massive rolling general strike.
1: Well, there is expected to be a very big turnout today with the strikes. And probably, you know, the biggest that we've seen here, certainly all year in France.
0: Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief.
1: The SNCF, the railways, has already said that one in ten trains will be working, which means a massive participation rate.
0: It's not just trains. Roads, airports, schools, even opera performances are set to be disrupted as the unions flex their muscles.
1: It's even some lawyers or some teachers taking part, some hospital workers.
0: The reforms of President Emmanuel Macron aim to simplify a pension system that's incredibly complicated and expensive. Average incomes of over 65s are in fact higher than those of under 65s. And in two years' time, the public pension scheme is expected to be 10 billion euros in the red. Not much is clear about Mr. Macron's proposed changes, except that they won't tackle those costs. In fact, the details of the reforms haven't even been published yet.
1: There's something very curious about this strike because it's actually happening ahead of any decisions that have been announced by the government on its pension reform. Now, what the government wants to do is to merge what is a very sprawling system of 42 different pension regimes into one. The point being that this will make it simple, that people may be able to understand where they are in terms of accumulating rights to pensions, and everyone will have a single points based system. This is all necessary. But it's very complicated, it's very ambitious, and at the moment, for the problem for the French is understanding where anyone is going to stand individually, and that's why people are, are taking to the streets.
0: It can't just be confusion, though, can it? Presumably, some people think they're going to lose out.
1: Well, of course, and there are special regimes in France for certain categories of workers. If you work on the railways, these are historical, a sort of hangover from the days when literally train drivers were, were you know, you were shoveling coal in the steam engines. And there is a legacy of that in some of the pension regimes that mean that workers can retire at, as early as 55 onto some of these special regimes. So there are inevitably some who are going to lose out. So there is anticipation of of the loss of those privileges that is also behind the the strikes and the protests.
0: But letting people retire at 55 must cost the state a lot. Are, Are the reforms trying to cut any costs?
1: Well, what's interesting is that this reform isn't even about overall spending on pension regime. This is not a reform that is designed to make cuts in spending on pensions. It's in fact supposed to be revenue neutral, and the French will continue to spend 14% of GDP on pensions as they currently do, and that's subsidised by people currently in work. That's how they finance the pensions of the people currently in retirement. If you look at the average statistics, the French get 60% of their previous earnings in, in pensions and that compares with about just under 40% in Germany, for example. But the government decided it can't at the same time raise the legal minimum retirement age, which is 62. And that's fairly young by OECD standards. In fact, people retire in reality at around 60 because they get various rights that they accumulate over their working life. So the government decided it can't do both. It can't both save money and raise the entire retirement age and reorganize the system. And that's why, you know, in a way, this is a curious strike, because it's a strike not against A request to make people work longer in France, it's a strike against changes in the rules and changes in the way pensions are calculated, which which for some people is going to mean losing out.
0: Doesn't that mean, though, that there's more trouble coming if the, if the pensions are so generous, so expensive, even after they've been reorganized? Presumably further down the line, cuts are inevitable.
1: I think that everyone who's looked at this, if you talk to people who are pension specialists at the ACD, for example, suggests that, you know, in the medium run, France is going to have to think again about the pensions system and is going to have to make adjustments so that people work longer in life and the retirement age will have to be increased. In a way, the French are putting off that, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be trouble further down the line.
0: And so are some people disappointed that President Macron is not really getting to the root of the problem here?
1: It depends where you stand. You know, in his campaign manifesto, he never promised to do anything other than change the system and create exactly what they're trying to do now. So he said, in fact, he promised not to raise the retirement age in his manifesto. So, you know, if you you measure by his promises, then it's not a disappointment. But I think those who look at the pension system and the, the cost of it, then you do have to ask why they're going through all this political effort to put in place a system that isn't even going to, in the end, save them any money.
0: So if this was always the plan, then why haven't the details been made clear?
1: Part of the reason the government hasn't yet announced the details of its pension reform is that Emmanuel Macron has decided that in the second half of his presidency, he ought to behave less like a sort of monarchical Jupiterian president that he was criticised for and to consult more and to be seen to be listening. And because he's been doing that, because there have been consultations now going on for months and months, he's suffering from the, the other side of that coin, which is a, a sense of drift and a sense that the government isn't able to make up his mind on pensions. And that is also part of the problem.
0: And it sounds like the unions are capitalizing on that sense of drift, less a, a protest against any specifics of the plan, more just that everybody's worried about how they'll be treated.
1: I think that's right. I mean, you, what you've had in France over the last year is you've had protests really dominated by the Gilets Jaunes, which were the yellow jacket protesters that emerged on the roundabouts and on the road junctions across France, but they weren't related to unions. And I think what you're seeing now is a, an attempt by the unions, which have historically played a big role in terms of organising street process in France, the unions making an effort to get back into centre stage and to show that they still can that they can still bring people onto the streets and they can still cause chaos. So there is another element to these strikes beyond just protests against the pension reform itself.
0: So where's this headed, do you think? Will will the reforms go through and, and that'll be the end of the story?
1: Well, I think what everyone's looking at is public opinion. Are people going to back the strikes or are people going to back the government? And that will depend on how disruptive things are and how tolerant the French are about ongoing a rolling strike on public transport. Because in the run-up to Christmas, this could be really disruptive for people. Early next year, next March, there are local government elections. So if the government doesn't manage the pension reform properly or has to back down, there will be an occasion for the French to, to punish them at the polls. So the government will be watching that very carefully indeed.
0: Sophie, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Sudan has been at war almost without interruption since gaining independence from Britain in 1956. Fighting in the region of Darfur has been going on since 2003. It precipitated a humanitarian crisis described by the UN as one of the worst in the world.
2: This is a conflict that's forced two and a half million Darfurians to
0: flee their homes. Many believe that what's happening here is genocide. But the politics of Sudan has radically changed. Mass protests this year led to the ousting of Omar al-Bashir, the country's president since 1989 and the man that many blame for the misery in Darfur. A new round of talks between the transitional Sudanese government and rebel groups is scheduled for next week, offering a slender chance for peace in the region.
3: Since the early 2000s, Darfur has been a name essentially synonymous with suffering.
0: Tom Gardner writes about East Africa for The Economist.
3: This began when rebels took up arms against the government of Omar al-Bashir in 2003. He responded by unleashing militia, which killed some 300,000 people, drove more than 2 million people from their homes. It led to the intervention of what was at the time the world's largest UN peacekeeping mission, the largest humanitarian operation, and eventually the first ever indictment of a sitting president by the International Criminal Court. Mr. Bashir is wanted by the ICC for war crimes and alleged genocide in Darfur. To explain a bit more about the nature of this conflict, which is infinitely complicated, it pits so-called Arab tribes of Darfur, which were supported and in the past armed by the central government in Khartoum, the capital, against the so-called African tribes of Darfur, both civilians and the rebels, who would long complained of marginalisation by Khartoum. And most notoriously, it involved what became known as the Janjaweed, which means devils on horseback. And these were essentially militiamen unleashed by the government who raped and killed and pillaged on mass of the orders of Bashir's government so mr bashir is no longer in power how is darfur now i visited al fasha which is the capital of north darfur it's a garrison town you had the permanent camp of the un mission still there in the center of town, you have this enormous, imposing army headquarters. And everywhere, you see troops and trucks and jeeps belonging to the rapid support forces. The RSF, which is a notorious Darfuri paramilitary, which grew out of the Janjaweed, and is led by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who is more commonly known as Hamiti, arguably the most powerful figure in Sudan in the transitional government in Khartoum. And what does the transitional government have planned for Darfur? Do you think things will change there? The transitional government, which is which is largely civilian, though it does have a fairly substantial military component in it as well, it has made the peace file, as they call it in Sudan. Peace in the peripheral regions, including Darfur, it's number one priority. To that end, it's declared a ceasefire with rebels, which seems to be being observed by pretty much everyone. It's invited rebel leaders back from exile. I met one of them, in fact, in, in al Fasha, where they opened an office. They can meet with supporters. They can meet the victims who still languish in internal displacement camps near towns like al Fasha. And, you know, it's markedly opened up access for humanitarian organizations as well as journalists. It is committed, I think, to peace in a way which the previous regime simply wasn't. What
0: about ordinary Darfuris, though? Are are they optimistic about what's happening?
3: I think they have ambivalent feelings, to be honest, about what is happening. Obviously, you see flashes of optimism and color just around the city. On the, on the walls of the city, you see murals, revolutionary slogans like Sudan is for all. So there is clearly a sense that finally there might be this opportunity for peace but they have deep, ingrained suspicions of the government in in Khartoum. They're certainly cautious in their optimism. I spoke to Mohammed hagar who works for the Darfur office of the National Human Rights Commission, which was set up by the previous government, essentially to appease the international community, but kept on a very tight leash. He was very critical of the old government. He was arrested three times in the past. And I chatted with him in a a noisy cafe in the city of Al-Fasha, and I asked him how things have changed.
4: Yeah, not uh, there is not a clear change happened in Darfur. Right now, the clear thing that uh, everyone can feel here that change is the the freedom that we have right now in, in Darfur, freedom of uh, speak, freedom of uh, opinion, and even the political freedom that you can express your idea in anywhere and in any place. Yeah. This is one of the result of revolutions.
0: You mentioned that the conflict began 17 years ago with this fight between two different groups of Darfuris. Has anything been done to, to change that fundamental dynamic? Will that problem go away?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the real challenge. Firstly, resolving the land problem. Darfur is often considered one of the world's first climate change conflicts, where you have land shortage, which was exacerbated by harsh droughts from the 1980s. And though the Arab tribes and militias, the so-called Janjaweed, which were involved in the war in the 2000s, they stole, they occupied, settled lands belonging to their so-called African neighbours, in part because they're simply not enough to go around. They still occupy those lands. The victims demand that they be returned but they say it's still not safe for them to even to go back to visit their farms. So this is a really fraught and, uh, and difficult issue to resolve peacefully. Perhaps the most important thing of all is, you know, to bring lasting peace to Darfur, the, the new government needs to essentially achieve something which has evaded each regime in Khartoum since independence from Britain in 1956, which is essentially resolving the problem of governing distant, unruly places whose inhabitants have long resented the rulers at the centre. To do this, they need to give them a real stake in the country. This is really the challenge of Sudan itself.
0: It sounds like quite a mixed picture. How optimistic are you overall about the chances for peace?
3: My view is that this is the historic opportunity. If they miss this one, then it's, you know, it's going to be very hard to bring peace in the foreseeable future at all. At the moment, the big concern for all Sudanese surrounds the, the role of the military in this transitional government. The balance of power between the civilians and the military is the pressing concern and it applies to the peace process in Darfur as much as it does to democratic progress in in the rest of the country. So until we know how much power the civilians really have in this transitional government, and whether they will be able to hold an election in three years' time as they have promised, then it will be hard to see how great the chances really are for lasting peace in Darfur. Mohammed Hagar, who I spoke to, he kind of expressed this quite clearly, that, you know, there is this entrenched suspicion of Khartoum, this sense that Darfuris will always be second-class citizens, that the feeling that the changes that are underway in the rest of the country have not yet reached Darfur.
4: I think this is the only chance we have to bring a comprehensive peace in, in Sudan. Because after the revolution, or after the the fall of uh, Al-Bashir government, there is a new government which represented the whole Sudan. The majority of them, they are willing to improve the situation in Sudan, not only peace, even the political situation, the democracy, and the economic, and culture, and social, and everything. So we have this chance. The
3: Sudan is at a historic moment where everything is hanging in the balance. What happens in Darfur is in a way a microcosm of what is happening in the rest of Sudan. Thanks very much for your time, Tom. Thank you. you.
0: Immigration remains one of the most emotive and divisive political issues in countries around the world. But beneath the rhetoric and the policy proposals are personal stories which can reveal some simple economic truths.
3: My name is Mohammed Rahima. I come from Syria three years ago. So Mohammed Rahima, he
2: was in Syria in late 2015, a small village outside Damascus. He was about to be drafted in the Syrian army, not something he wanted to do.
0: Philip Coggan writes Bartleby, the economist's column on management and work.
2: So he managed to get to Lebanon, and then from Lebanon all the way through Greece and trekking across Europe, ended up in the, the famous jungle camp in Calais, which has a pretty brutal reputation.
3: I myself, I'm a good cooking because I cook for my friend who get, uh, legs are broken when we try to come to England.
2: But what he did do there was he made some friends, uh, Alex Simmons, who is a, a British volunteer, and he learned to cook and he learned English. So when he eventually did make it to uh, London, he had a potential skill he could use. That's where... Uh, with the help of Alex, he started to set up this pop-up Syrian brunch uh, outfit in a Someone pizza restaurant in really Archway.
3: So uh, The food is delicious, but like it's a simple ingredient like uh, 10 tomatoes, onion, garlic. Uh,
2: he made it into a su- success. Uh, unfortunately, the pizza restaurant closed, but he's setting up a new pop-up restaurant in South London in December this year.
0: And in your reporting, you've obviously spoken to people like Mohammed who have overcome serious obstacles in getting settled and and starting a business. What is it, do you think, that they bring to an economy?
2: Immigrants bring two things. First of all, they have traveled a long way to get to this country. So they're keen, they're enthusiastic to work. And uh, they also bring a new perspective so they can see market niches that others might not spot. And if you go back over history, you can see waves of refugees. The Flemish came to England and set up the wool industry. The Huguenots came to England, set up the silk industry. In the 19th century, millions and millions of Europeans went to America and to Argentina and Brazil as well to take advantage of the opportunities there. So an influx of refugees, new labor, new ideas is massively helpful for many economies.
0: And lots of stories that we hear about refugees is that they have a strong desire to work. Is is that the sense that you got here?
2: Yes, absolutely. You arrive in a country, you haven't got any money because you're a refugee and you need to find something to do. And often the authorities make it hard for you to find something to do. But many refugees are young, they're, you know, in the prime of their lives and they want to contribute. Uh, And it's difficult often for them to get work in the regular economy because they don't have an employment record. So many of them become entrepreneurs and that's what the Bartleby column looked at, the attempts to try and get uh, people who were refugees to start businesses. And one charity is trying to start a thousand refugee-led businesses in Britain by 2025. So TURN, it stands for the Entrepreneurial Refugee Network, has courses in marketing and sales. And two of the people I spoke to had been on those courses and had benefited from them and are already doing a pop-up restaurant work
0: in Britain. And so what? What kinds of, of services do these charities and, and others like it provide in terms of getting people access to to the job market?
2: There's two different ways of looking at it. There's uh, one set which um, puts them in contact with people, gives them training, that turn does that. There was the refugee support group that I spoke to as well, which actually sets up, set up in the camps where it's very difficult for people to find work. They set up a sewing uh, cooperative where they provided the material and the sewing machines to women. You can buy gifts of bags and other things that they've made, and you get a little message about the individual who made it within the bag. I already have some for my Christmas presents. And it's just a way of... Um, giving people the dignity of work and allowing them to develop some skills that they can use, which sitting in a refugee camp, it's very hard to do.
0: And what about the argument put forth in some quarters that essentially a pound that goes to a refugee effort is a pound that doesn't go to, to native-born people and, and that you know, the refugees in some are, are a drain on economies?
2: Well, I think over the long run, that's nonsense. Um, first of all, it assumes the lump of labor fallacy, which is that there's only a set amount of work to go around. So one job to a refugee means one fewer job to a domestic worker, but that's not the case. Uh, Much bigger population than we had 100 years ago, and yet there are lots of jobs. Women are in the workforce, and yet there are lots of jobs. That's because every person who works buys goods, so they're also a source of demand as well as a source of labor supply. And the second is that, as I said before, refugees often have new ideas. So 44 out of the unicorns in the States, that's the private businesses worth more than a billion, were started by at least one immigrant founder. And that includes Google uh, and includes uh, Tesla. And of course, you know, Steve Jobs was the son of a Syrian uh, refugee. And if you go back to, you know, Jewish refugees in the late 19th and earlier 20th centuries, often these people are the most innovative because they're coming with a fresh perspective.
0: Philip, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank
4: you.
0: That's all from us on the intelligence, but we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash and see you back here tomorrow.
3: Planning for your next trip?